Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, one of the best-reviewed contemporary historical shows of recent years. My guest is Helen Molesworth, who has curated Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, 1933 to 1957, which is on view now at the Hammer Museum. It'll be there through May 15th. It's the first exhibition to examine Black Mountain College, an experimental, interdisciplinary, and immensely influential liberal arts college in the mountains of western North Carolina. The school attracted faculty and students from all over the world at a time when World War II was forcing significant global emigration, and thus provided a place where questions of globalism and the role of the artist in society were considered and furthered. Among the artists who spent time at Black Mountain and who are included in Molesworth's exhibition are Ruth Asawa, Willem de Kooning, Joseph and Annie Albers, Robert Rauschenberg, Cy Twombly, Ray Johnson, Jess, and plenty more. Ninety artists in all are included in Molesworth's show. Its outstanding must-own catalog, one of the best in recent memory, was published by Yale University Press. Molesworth is the chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles. Her previous exhibitions include This Will Have Been, which examined the impact of feminism on the art of the 1980s, and Work Ethic, which looked at how mostly 1960s artists merged everyday life with art making. On the second segment, art historian Jennifer Robb discusses her new book, Frederick Church, The Art and Science of Detail. It examines how and why Church used unusually detailed passages in his enormous paintings to engage contemporary debates about union, nation, and science. She teaches at Yale University. But first, Helen Molesworth, after the break. A Baroque masterpiece has joined the Getty Collection. Orazio Gentileschi's Danai depicts the moment Zeus descends as a shower of gold to impregnate the cloistered princess, who then gave birth to Perseus. Painted around 1621, it was part of a commission of three paintings depicting different scenes of women experiencing divine encounters drawn from Hebrew, Christian, and Greek theologies. Danai can now be seen with another member of the triad, Lot and his daughters, only at the Getty. For more information, visit getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, the first comprehensive museum exhibition in the United States to examine the renowned experimental college. Leap Before You Look features more than 200 objects and 90 artists, including Annie and Joseph Albers, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, Ruth Asawa, Robert Rauschenberg, Elaine and Willem de Kooning, Susan Weil, and Cy Twombly. Delve into the history and influence of Black Mountain College with in-gallery performances and more than two dozen public programs, all free and open to the public. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Leap before you look, on view through May 15th at the Hammer Museum. Free for good. And we're back. Helen Molesworth, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Some schools, more traditional schools, such as the Dusseldorf School of Photography, for example, and perhaps most famously, end up having a very consistent look and feel and such in terms of the artists and the work that, that descends from those schools. Boy, Black Mountain sure didn't. So how and why not? Well, I think it's one of the great strengths of college that that consistency did not, in fact, emerge. And doesn't emerge, I think, for one very powerful reason that's complicated. But in a nutshell, I think once Black Mountain College started the summer sessions, which they begin in 1944, 
in which they decide, the faculty decides, that they will invite guest faculty from afar to come to Black Mountain to teach for the summer and make those summer institutes quite arts concentrated. Because even though arts were at the center of the Black Mountain educational experience and philosophy, it was in fact still a liberal arts college. But the summer sessions were really the place where it turned into an art school full, full bore. And Joseph Albers, as doctrinaire and dictatorial as his reputation may be, was in fact neither. When it came to who to invite to come teach at the summer sessions, he was extraordinarily Catholic in his approach. And he proceeded to invite really an extremely heterogeneous group of people to teach there. And I think that that heterogeneity of instructors combined with the the interdisciplinarity of the forms of instruction, and by that I mean there was you know, weaving and music and theater and visual arts and photography. Those two things produced a very heterogeneous field. The thing that's complicated that contributes to that heterogeneity, or if it's not complicated, it's at least counterintuitive, is that the other thing I think contributed to it was Albers when he taught his design, color theory, and matière or material studies courses, they were offered on Fridays so that no other courses would conflict with those classes. And one of the things that that meant is that almost all of the students who attended Black Mountain took those classes, a fair number of faculty took those classes, and an even larger number of faculty spouses took those classes. So at a counterintuitive level, one of the reasons you get diversity is because everybody has a shared skill set. So instead of asking the students to make work in the vein of their teachers, which is, I suppose, what might have been happening at the Dusseldorf Academy or other places where you know, students' work look largely similar to one another and also look, by extension, largely similar to the their teacher's work. Here, I think Albers was interested in this idea that I'm going to give these students a set of skills that allows them to solve whatever it is their specific problem is. And that, I think, is the sort of deep, counterintuitive, possibly magical moment of Black Mountain. It's a little beyond the scope of your show, but how common was that idea to American education of artists at that point in, in America's history? That everyone would take the same class or that the roster of outside teachers would be different? That the students were not expected to kind of follow in the tradition of their teachers and to make kind of work descending therefrom. That's pretty unique to not Black Mountain per se, but to those people who were invested in progressive education. So basically, to me, that's the moment where, you know, art training meets progressive education. Because in progressive education, what you're saying is, you know, no rote learning, no memorization, no kind of, you know, dutiful students transposing or transcribing the lecture of venerable teacher, 
but that rather the learning and teaching situation is one based on dialogue and mutual shared question and answering. And so I think that progressive education model, which finds itself in other institutions, you know, like Bard and Oberlin and Antioch and Bennington, right? Those those institutions are running off of that progressive education engine. And I think that's where that you're allowed to not mimic your teacher as part of your education. One of the things that pops up repeatedly, both in what you write in your catalog essay and in the letters of, of Black Mountain principles that you quote, is that teachers said that they learned more from teaching and from their students than the students learned taking their classes. And I can't imagine an instructor at, say, the New York Studio School ever saying that kind of thing. Was that planned or expected, or was that just something that people discovered happening once they were there and engaged with the place and, and the people who were there? I think that that wasn't planned perhaps by anyone other than John Rice, who was the college's founder. I think Rice, in a way, because he was a classics professor, understood more about what it would mean to open up the pedagogical field to the Socratic method in that way and open up the pedagogical field to progressive ideals than perhaps, you know, Jack Twerkoff or Franz Klein did when they came to teach for the summers, right? I mean, I think they weren't pedagogues first. They were artists first and teachers second. So I think that's where that quality of surprise comes from, because they were also involved in a teaching paradigm that would have been quite different than the one they themselves grew up in. But Rice, as the sort of masterminder of the school from its inception, I think did understand the capacity that progressive education had to make the teacher feel as if he or she was, in fact, learning more than the student. As people, as artists in particular, came down to Asheville and Black Mountain to teach, did they take that experience home with them and tell their artist peers about it? Did that end up being maybe a reason that artists wanted to go down for the summer? Very much so. I mean, I do think that part of what I ended up calling the sort of cosmopolitan nature of the college, part of how that functioned was that people came and brought back those brought back the both the ideas and the ideals of the college to where they had come from. So you have de Kooning leaving Black Mountain in 48 and going to New York to start the club. You have Emerson Wolfler leaving Black Mountain and making his way to Chenard to become, you know, Ed Ruscha and Joe Good's first arts teacher, right? That kind of thing. So I think that, you, you know, you have Marguerite Wildenhain starting Pond Farm. Like you have that impulse on the part of many people, actually, that they had just attended or had been to something special, and they wanted to take a little bit of it and recreate it when they got to wherever they were going. We'll get to some specific artists and people who were at Black Mountain in a moment, but before we do, I want to hit one or two other kind of big themes so we have a little bit of framework for the people we'll talk about. 
You devoted a, a big section of your essay to the question of form. And form seems like an old-fashioned thing for a progressive place such as Black Mountain to be focused on. But you argue quite persuasively that many of the protagonists at the school were completely obsessed not just with form but communicating and teaching it. Why and how so? I think one of the things that's so interesting to me about Black Mountain, and I I don't know if this comes across in either the book or the show because I don't know if it's sort of like in the, the deep DNA or gray matter of it all, is... One of the things that's happening at that tiny little college is the shift from what we would understand to be, you know, the end of modernism to the beginning of postmodernism. You know, so the modernists are really, really interested in form. As the challenge to certain modernist precepts uh, are evolving, so for instance, you know, the autonomy of the work of art, for instance, is a kind of modernist category. That's a category that gets really challenged. But form as the fundamental way that artists use and shape material to produce an expression, that is not being left behind, right? That's actually being carried through. And I think that's, you know, a really important part of Black Mountain The other important thing I think about Black Mountain is that because so many, so much of the first part of the college's life is structured by an emigre or dissident or expat community that has been forced to leave Europe, a a German Jewish community forced to leave Europe due to the Nazis, there's a set of translation problems, right? You have people who are European who are speaking languages other than English. And they're trying to figure out a lot of stuff, you know, not the least of which is how the Enlightenment has led them to fascism. But also, how do you communicate across such radical ruptures of space, time, and culture? And so... ultimately media. And ultimately media. So form takes on... Form becomes, on the one hand, it's the empty vessel, and on the other hand, it's the lingua franca that they can discuss amongst themselves. It is, at the core, what you have to do when you're an artist. Even even artists, you know, who later engage in, you know, the formless or the form or the basses, you can only have that in relationship to form, right? There's there's no way to have formlessness not be in extreme dialogue with the problem of form itself. And then and then the last thing I would say about that about about the importance of form is because the college was interdisciplinary, form in a way takes on an even more charged connotation. Because form is also the thing that you can only be interdisciplinary if, in fact, you have different disciplines, right? I mean, and that's this early moment of interdisciplinarity comes from a very strong disciplinary place, which is how I understand, for instance, Merce Cunningham saying, okay, well, you do the music and I'll do the choreography and you do the scenography and we don't really have to talk about those things or know what one another is doing in advance because I respect the autonomy of your formal decisions around your medium or your discipline 
And what's interdisciplinary is the coming together of those three different modalities. And and so that, in that early moment of interdisciplinarity, I think form is the thing that actually allows people to talk to each other. The first artist you, you mention and examine in your catalog essay, the very first one, is Ruth Asawa, which I enjoyed both as a native San Franciscan and as a longtime fan. But of the eight or so dozen artists in your show, why was she the one, why was she the place to start? Partly because I love that work, um, just to be like so honest. And partly because, I mean, though it's not necessarily important for your listeners or the readers or the people who go and see the show, that's where the show started for me. The show started with my own late in life discovery of Ruth Asawa, like many native New Yorkers. I grew up with the extreme provincialism of New York City as my frame of reference. And of course, didn't know who she was. And I had to allude to your San Francisco roots. I one summer was working on an exhibition about the some relationships I was intuiting between dance and drawing. And my research intern, a wonderful young woman named Megan Steinman, was from Northern California, and she asked me if I knew who Ruth Asawa was. And she showed me the work, and I immediately fell in love with it. And upon, you know, reading about Ruth Asawa that summer, I discovered she went to Black Mountain. And of course, I had known about Black Mountain. We all know about Black Mountain. But I knew what everybody knew. I knew, you know, Rauschenberg, Cage, Cunningham, you know, Albers. And I thought, if this amazing woman went to Black Mountain, who else went there? Like, how big is the story that I don't know, you know, if it can contain this extraordinary human being with her extraordinary life story and her amazing body of work. And so to begin with her is in a way really the the homage to my own curatorial process, you know, my own process of discovery around the exhibition. So one of the reasons people like me on a show like this ask questions is because we have a 70% guess as to what the answer is going to be, and I, I'm totally wrong on this one. But I, I, I thought you were maybe going to mention that one of the reasons you started with Asawa is because the Black Mountain influence on her went beyond her art making and into how other things she did with art and education in her life. And could you detail those just for a moment? Because I think that's part of why it was such an impactful catalog essay opening. You know, Ruth Asawa is, of course, like many black students, she's the quintessential Black Mountain student. She goes on to start the first art program in the public schools in San Francisco and Oakland. You know, I mean, so here she is, an artist making extremely strong work in her own right, work that is largely neglected by whatever quote-unquote establishment might have been in place in the 50s and 60s, and neglected because she's a woman, because she's Asian-American, because she lives in San Francisco. It's a painting town. Yeah, it's a painting town. New York was a painting town. She has, you know, she's raising a family. But I never sensed in Asawa any problem with that because Asawa is is a Black Mountain person. She's really shaped by the progressive education model. And that's a model that teaches you not so much to give back in some sort of like anodyne way, but to participate in the creation of the community you want to live in. And so she 
you know, realizes as her kids start to go to school, there's no art education. She can't abide it, so she changes it, you know. And that's a very Black Mountain thing, and that happens with a lot of Black Mountain folks. I mean, a lot of Black Mountain folks after Black Mountain go on to participate in the making of the world they want to live in. John Cage is one of the best-known Black Mountain people. What was the role of music at Black Mountain, and how much did Cage have to do with that? Huge and a lot. Music plays a really big role at Black Mountain from its inception in the 30s, largely because several prominent musicians from Europe, again, who are forced to flee Europe due to the Nazis, come to teach and live and work at Black Mountain. Prime among them, Heinrich Jalowitz, who had been a very important conductor in Vienna, as well as other, you know, as well as the sort of like Germanic countries in Europe. He was one of Schoenberg's, Arnold Schoenberg's most cherished students. And he brings with him both the Germanic musical tradition, European classical music tradition, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and the the new modern music and 12-tone music, you know, of Scharnberg. He's a really, he, he leaves a deep impression on the DNA of the college. And the first summer session dedicated to arts in 1944 is in fact led by him, and it's to mark the 70th birthday of Schoenberg. So music is always being played. It's both being taught. I mean, students are learning how to play, but it's also being played after dinner and on weekends as part of the community entertaining itself. We should note, perhaps, that they had limited access to radio and virtually no access to television. Right. Like no access to television. Right. I mean, this is, this is you know, this is a community living in mountain, you know, in the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina that is essentially sort of self-sustaining. Really cut off from the, from the flatlands around it in every direction. In every direction. I mean, they would go to Asheville for, you know, art supplies and beer, but that was pretty much it. And, you know, so that the sense of the community organizing itself meant that they also entertained themselves and music played a big role in that. So Cage, when Cage arrives as Cunningham's accompanist, which is how the auspices under which he first arrives at the college, he enters an extremely rich musical field. But he does so at a time when he is at the moment in his life and his intellectual and aesthetic trajectory, when he is beginning to question profoundly the very values of the Germanic musical tradition of, you know, that comes from out of Beethoven. And he has a great deal of antipathy to this, you know, melodic, harmonic, orchestral, bombastic, in Cage's mind, tradition. And Albers, Joseph Albers says, okay, how about you explain why and you show us what the alternative is? And at that moment, Cage prepares a concert series and lecture series on the work of Eric Satie. And that is a kind of watershed moment, both, I think, for Cage individually as a practitioner and a thinker, but also for a lot of people in the room.
Now, most of the people in the room fight Gage, you know, and, and, and are not actually, in fact, interested in the radical ideas put forward by his reading of Satie. But just enough people pick it up, right, that it becomes this incredibly influential incursion. And it's really, you know, Cage who kind of creates the room or the the conditions of possibility for the much more experimental music that is that sort of dominates the quote unquote second half of Black Mountain years to to occur. We mentioned a moment ago that Black Mountain and Asheville are extremely cut off from the surrounding country. They're both in extreme western Tennessee. I'm sorry, they're both in extreme western North Carolina, not far from the Tennessee border. But they are in the South, at least geographically. So Jacob Lawrence arrives to teach in 1946. Is there any blowback about an African-American man coming to teach white students in North Carolina? None that I could find in the archive. Albers does arrange for Jacob and his wife, Gwendolyn, to travel on a private rail card after Baltimore. Baltimore's a Mason-Dixon line, and Albers understood that they that if he brought them on a regular rail car, that at Baltimore they would have to move basically to the third-class segregated car. And Albers refused to let this happen. And this, you know, given the ca- the perennially cash-strapped nature of the college, I think this is really an indication of how thoughtful and sensitive Albers was. He was, after all, a man no no longer comfortably able to live in his own country. His wife, Annie, was Jewish. So that sensitivity in some ways is not surprising and in other ways is. You know, the, the other thing worth noting is that the Southern Appalachians, whether in Tennessee or North Carolina, never really stood with the Confederacy. Eastern, you know, Lincoln was forever trying to free Eastern Tennessee from the Confederate yoke, and in Western North Carolina, the Confederacy had to employ the the Home Guard, the infamous Home Guard, a kind of domestic terrorist police force, to to try to force the Mountain people to to enlist. So it's it's geographically Southern, but culturally, you know, has a long history of of dissent and and difference. Lawrence also arrives as someone who is interested in to dramatically uh, kind of shorthand his work in, in, in kind of narrative painting at a time when that is not the dominant thing in American art and is quickly becoming even less dominant. How did what he brought go over? And, and, and did, it, did his approach to, to narrative and painting, I don't know, have an impact or, or live on in, in, in other people there in any particular way? Not that I could point to necessarily in the quote-unquote like results (laughs) you know uh, in the student work that we subsequently encounter I mean I think two figurative narrative socialist realist painters are there Lawrence and Ben Sean and I don't think you can see that their influence nearly as much I think as you can see the influence of someone like for in, like for instance de Kooning. You know, you look at a lot of student work from Black Mountain, the summer de Kooning's there, and see many examples of 
young people trying to figure out if they could make a painting that looked like that, if they could figure out how, the, how that worked almost. And you don't see that as much in the work. I think where you see that or feel it is more in the kinds of recollections and that people have about the college, about how important other people are right, that, that people are always being positioned as more important than anything else. So people are more important than art. And I think you see it in the kind of politics that emerge in people, you know, a kind of, you know, for lack of a, a better word to use an old fashioned word, a kind of humanist politics and a, and a belief in democracy, you know, as an extension of humanism. I think that's more where I would say you could feel the influence of people like Lawrence and, and Sean. You know, this is also the period in American art history where as people leave canvas and paint, they begin to show up in photography and most famously in street photography. Do you think the photographers took special notice of Lawrence or no? If no, that's fine. I don't know. I couldn't really – I don't feel that strong a kind of – cause and effect around Lawrence's presence. I think, and it's, this isn't to turn Lawrence himself into a symbolic person, but I do think that one of the effects of a heterogeneous group of people teaching and living and learning together is that people, I think part of what's being modeled there by Albers is that heterogeneity and difference are values that we all should be ascribing to. And Lawrence is part of, Lawrence makes that happen by virtue of his interest in a kind of socialist, realist painting. The other thing I think about Lawrence in this context, of course, is that Lawrence also represents the long arm of Picasso. Because Lawrence's compositions are basically, you know, a working through of what do you do with an image in the wake of Picasso's fracturing of the picture plane, right? And like Lawrence's almost collage style of composition, I think in a way I see that more than an image than students moving to, you know, social realism. I think what you're looking at is a bunch of people trying to figure out in the wake of several fundamental huge changes in the world of picture making, Picasso being a pretty big one, Lawrence represents a way to keep making a picture. You mentioned Willem de Kooning a few moments ago, and we can't not talk about de Kooning. He's there in 1948. He makes one of his most important paintings and maybe and well, certainly a painting on the very short list of the most important works made at Black Mountain. It's, it's titled Asheville. It's at the Phillips Collection in Washington. Is there any particular time and place and reason behind this painting and it being made there? I don't know. It's so This is like the perennially hard conversation in a way about what was made there. One of the reasons, you know, just so everyone knows who's listening, that we not every work that's in the show was made at Black Mountain. In fact, most of the works in the show were not made at Black Mountain. And one of the reasons we decided that it didn't have to be made at Black Mountain is that if you were there teaching, 
you might have been busy. <laughs> you might not have made your best work. And we wanted there to be some moments of like really exceptionally good work and some moments of student work. And, you know, we wanted a representation of the thing. Right. We wanted a, a pretty diverse field at, the, at that level. I think that de Kooning was having, and I'm suspicious of cause and effect as, as, as anyone who's read anything I've ever written would probably know. I'm, I'm a deeply, deeply suspect. I'm always plagued by what verb to use that holds together the action of an artist and the ultimate object that they produce. All I can say is like de Kooning was there during the summer when people were, when the level of conversation was very, very high. I mean, he's talking with Cage, he's talking with Cunningham, he's talking with Buckminster Fuller, like Elaine de Kooning is there, the Albers is there. You know, this is, this, Rauschenberg is a student. You know, I mean, this is, this is a heady mix of people. That he has a breakthrough painting while all of that is happening is, you know, a testament to perhaps his capacity to listen and participate and be, you know, and take the openness of the conversations and the socializing and to take that openness with him into the studio. So there's that. The one thing I will say, there's a kind of purple in Asheville, and by this I mean purple pigment, purple paint, purple color, that we saw in a lot of work that was made in Asheville. And I'm pretty convinced. It's not, it's not my kind of research. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's going to find out what the art store paint shipment was. You know what I mean? Like, that's not where I do my labor. But there had to have been some, like, delivery of purple paint at some point in the paint shop in Asheville. Because that, that color happens in a lot of stuff. Harry Cooper, in his kind of mini essay in the catalog about de Kooning and this painting, speculates more than cause and effects or tries to establish a cause and effect that Gorky's, Achille Gorky's death by suicide in the summer de Kooning was there in 1948 may have impacted de Kooning, this painting, and maybe other people at Black Mountain too? I think it's probably hard to imagine what it must have been like in that time period to hear that kind of news. We're so accustomed to immediacy, you know, and then the immediacy of, like, if you learn, like, I'm sure both of us could right now open our Instagram, and if someone in our world had died, there'd be a, you, do you know what I mean? Like, we'd both know almost instantaneously, and we'd both engage in a kind of, you know, affirmative relationship to that knowledge that would make us feel connected to our tribe, however we might describe that and however attenuated that tribe might be spatially. And, we, and we're more used to traveling regularly in today's America than certainly de Kooning and others in 1948 America were. So to have been away from New York when this monumental, at least to the artist, thing happened would have been significant too, I would think. Exactly. And so the news, you know, of... Gorky's death arriving at Black Mountain must have been quite a different kind of news, if you know what I mean. Like it must have it must have shattered something pastoral and idyllic. 
We know from Harry's account that de Kooning withdraws from the community for three days. Even that is a kind of time that I don't think our contemporary culture affords us, you know. And what that might have modeled for people is also really, I've thought about that often, about what it must have been then to be a young person and to have watched someone like de Kooning handle that news in that way. What effect might that have had on what you thought about the power that artists have over one another, the the nature of friendship, the nature of suicide and depression and loss. Of course, that loss comes in the wake of World War II, where many of the people who would have been there that summer would have experienced great loss prior to that. So many of the students at that moment are there on the GI Bill. So it's it's hard to, I mean, I say all these things in a way to convey how much I don't understand what that meant. You know, like the the empathy and the compassion I feel for it as a moment, but also really the the distance of history and just, you know, I remember learning again on my iPhone while I was installing my 80s show that Mike Kelly had died. And I immediately, you know, I mean, I literally called Sean Regan. You know, so I was able to ameliorate my own shock, you know, in a way that, of course, would not have been available to any of those people. So I just don't know. Two two more questions, one very specific and one very open-ended. The more specific one is, are there any places, whether it's in the U.S. or not, where you see the, the spirit, impact, influence, or whatever the right word is, of Black Mountain living on? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of places. I'm, I mean, on the one hand, there are institutions that have tried to, I think, carry on that tradition. I think, you know, the low residency MFAs at Bard College and Vermont College seem to me to be participating in the the spirit of Black Mountain. But I also see the spirit of Black Mountain happening in, you know, Bruce High Quality and Theaster Gates's Rebuild Foundation and the un, you know Noah Davis's the Underground Museum, you know instances where uh, you know the Mountain School you know here in in Los Angeles, you know instances where artists you know for lack of a better phrase they just takes things into their own hands, <laughs> you know and say we need a space where we can show work and talk about work in ways that are different from the institutional spaces that are being offered us, whether it's the museum, the gallery, or the academy. And so I think that impulse to make your own world, and to, to make that kind of program, is pretty high. Andrea Zatel's projects out in Joshua Tree were the ones I was thinking of. Yeah. Exactly. Same or kind of thing. Yeah, Greg Bordowitz's new program at the Art Institute of Chicago. You know what I mean? I think there's, I think you, we could make that list, and that list is whether they're influenced by Black Mountain directly or whether or not they're just influenced in spirit, you know, I, I can't say. But I think that that impulse to, of world-making is strong. Finally, a question about your process and how you selected work for the show. So there are, I think, 90, 86, 90 artists in the show and obviously piles of work. 
Did you have criteria that guided you in how you chose artworks to, you know, represent those artists? Or did you pick what you picked by a sense of feel, sense of visual feel? How did you, I mean, gosh, the 90 artists and and not just what they made, like you said, while they were in Western North Carolina, but what they made, period, is, is a really big swath of stuff. Well, you know, the first thing that happened, and I think this is, this is has to happen with any exhibition, and this partly comes from my love of sports. So making exhibitions is a game, and games require rules. And so the first rule was the work had to be made during the time the college was open. So we only chose works from 33 to 57. We had to cut off the ring, to use another sports metaphor. I mean, we had to... We had to figure out some way to limit the story because there's a million rabbit holes in the Black Mountain story. And for me, using the dates of the college was a way of allowing a certain degree of parity to remain between the people who were going to become famous but were not yet famous and the people who did not become famous. Right, Because if I can put Robert Rauschenberg's or Merce Cunningham's best work in the show, then, you know, then you're in a zone where it's not about the college anymore, where it's not about, like, how is it that you can, how do you get to be those people, right? Like, how do those, what's the, what's the group field that allows those ideas to emerge? Then you're in a masterpiece show. As pleasurable as a masterpiece show would have been, it didn't seem the most in keeping with the political or ethical ethos of the college. So that was the first thing to do. Then, you know, there was a long period where the checklist was way bigger than it is now. I mean, it was just ginormous. It was just about finding, right? Just finding things. And, and then there's that first year of research where everything you look at is amazing. Right, because you're seeing it all for the first time. So every color study, every student drawing, every everything is just yowza wowza, like you're just so excited. And then, you know, and again, I don't think this is so dissimilar from any other show. Then, you know, like basically you've gone net fishing, you know, like you've just hauled up a treasure trove and then you've got to start giving the show shape. And I tend to make, you know, when I make these group shows, I tend to make very narrative exhibitions. So I, you know, I go out gathering and then I look at everything and I, you know, it's, you know, I pin it up on a board and I put it in different clusters and I make lots of PowerPoints and, you know, I keep a notebook and they're, you're starting to feel like, what is the shape of this story that I want to tell? And that really helps the editing process. Because like once you figure out what ideas are your major protagonists, then you can figure out like, you know, what you can cut and what you have to, what you have to keep. 
the illustrated checklist is 81 pages long. So a lot stayed in. <laughs> yeah, there were times when that illustrated checklist was like 200 pages long. <laughs> there were times when that illustrated checklist was way too big to be emailed to anyone. Yeah, no, we we a lot hit the cutting the cutting floor on this one. But that's but that's also you know, one of the reasons I do that for two reasons. One, because your audience can really only, you know, most of the audience is there as a leisure activity. You know what I mean? So you gotta you gotta give them something that they can actually digest. And two, I always said, and I'll say it again, this is not the definitive Black Mountain show. This is just one of the first ones. There's a ton of work to be done still. And, you know, all we've done is sort of put a flag in the ground and say, you know, hey, all you PhD candidates, there's like, you know, 180 thesis topics in this exhibition. Pick one. Show us something we don't already know, because I would love to see it. Me too. Helen Molesworth, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Data, on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Data is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Marcel Broter's A Retrospective is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. The highly influential artist's first major exhibition in New York reunites key works from all aspects of his career, from early objects made of mussels and eggshells to books of his poetry and his most ambitious project, a fictitious museum with himself cast as curator, administrator, press agent, and founder, Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Welcome back. And now Jennifer Robb, whose new book, Frederick Church, The Art and Science of Detail, looks at how and why Frederick Church used extremely detailed passages, such as of plants, in his enormous paintings, to engage contemporary debates about union, science, and more. She teaches at Yale. Jennifer Robb, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, the new book is about why and how Frederick Edwin Church used such acute detail in his paintings. How would 19th century viewers have found that detail in his paintings? What would that have suggested to them? I mean, how they literally would find it is is a kind of interesting question because they would have confronted his most celebrated works as single picture exhibitions. So they would have been shown alone in individual galleries, exhibited for a fee, usually 25 cents. And so people would come in and, and their accounts, as with his first really major work, Niagara of 1857, which is used to be at the Corcoran and is now at the National Gallery of people spending an hour looking at this work of art. So really this kind of proto-cinematic immersive experience and people would bring opera glasses to look at 
paintings, which is just another reason why the why I chose to focus on detail because it's really such a part of, of looking at these paintings, confronting them in the 1850s and 60s, you know, looking at uh, newspaper advertisements that literally, you know, request that visitors bring their opera glasses to see these paintings. And we're talking about really pretty large paintings, you know, five by nine, often displayed with a good deal of sort of finesse with, uh, you know, darkened gas lit lantern rooms or skylights in the daytime, um, often with swags of fabric and, you know, people there with their opera glasses really focusing in on the details, as it were, kind of going back and forth between detail and whole. And so you really can't read an account of looking at church's works from the time without repeatedly confronting that word detail and often in a sense of sort of amazement or even bafflement. And that's certainly the case with with criticism from the 20th and century and, and in my own experience from just sort of eavesdropping on visitors' conversations in front of, you know, paintings like uh, The Heart of the Andes at the Met or, or Niagara, you know, people always commenting on the detail. And that's sort of what led me to think, well, what what does that mean during the time and, and what what are the stakes of looking at detail? Church tends to put his most acute detail in the lower left or the lower right-hand corners of paintings. Is that simply because that's where foreground always was? Or is there some broader reason that that's where he visually starts viewers on their way into a painting? I think it's in part a nod towards very established landscape conventions, you know, beginning with Claude Lorrain and and this sense of putting these so-called repoussoir devices, usually large trees that would then carry the eye from the, the foreground into the middle distance and then into the kind of warm, hazy background light. So I think there's there's that use of convention with church, those very specific foreground details, as you note, in the corners. And these are usually, again, very long paintings. So they sort of cluster at the edges, I think, in part to kind of move your eye into the center. But what's so fascinating about his details and specifically often his trees as opposed to earlier landscape painters is that it really they really tend to lock your eyes in there they don't necessarily sort of release you easily into middle ground and background there's such a kind of scientific veracity about the the work there the sort of objects, as it were, the specimens and thinking about a painting like the Heart of the Andes or the kind of the, the, the way that water works across the field of the foreground of Niagara. So I, I think it's a way to sort of get your eye and also to sort of start 
in a, some sense, a kind of conversation between left and right foreground to kind of move you back and forth. But I think the key difference with church, as opposed to, again, more sort of established landscape conventions, is that the eye doesn't depart so easily from those places. And there's there's often a sense of sort of narrative gestures or directions that the painting might take. And thinking here about a painting like again, the the heart of the Andes at the Met, where there's a little pathway that seems like a very, a very easy place for the eye to kind of follow. And you follow it back and you see two pilgrims worshiping by a cross and the cross is sort of a bright white against a darker background and it kind of brings the eye very easily there. And yet, it, you don't move for, forward, you don't move further, you're sort of confronted with this amazing tangle of underbrush and forest life, and you're kind of then brought back again into that corner area where he's in fact signed the canvas on this dead tree and a sort of spotlit area on his signature, which reminds me of, of the ways in which the paintings themselves would have been spotlit. So. I think there's an interesting tension in this one, you know, foreground area between this gesture towards religious allegory, which I think would have been expected by viewers, and a kind of a denotation of the self in this world, you know, a kind of intense subjectivity. He's written himself into the into the painting, you know, onto the tree and kind of spotlit that area, and it becomes even more prominent. You mentioned Niagara, so let's pick out a few famous details from the Church Niagara's in, in the 1857 painting, the, the Corcoran painting that is now clumsily installed at the National Gallery, there's a limb or a branch that is going over the falls in the extreme lower left of the painting. And it's, it's a detail that does not exist in a study for the painting. What might that detail suggest? It's a detail that's funny that that's always been this kind of punctum moment for me that I at once wanted to consistently ignore when I was in front of the painting, but because it seems to be, on the one hand, a kind of natural part of things, on the other hand, it it just sticks out just enough and doesn't quite work scale-wise or, or, or sort of troubles, I suppose, the scale of the painting. And I think to go back to your, your question about you know, why place these details at the edges of the painting? I think this is a kind of interesting violation of the kind of Claudian repoussoir formula where you get the the tree that again carries the eye into the background. That here we have this kind of dead branch or whole tree trunk. And I've looked at this painting so many times and with curators as well. And it's it sort of traffics between one and the other. So that is to say something quite small uh, and partial or, or quite large and monumental, a whole tree, but nevertheless sort of is, is uprooted and, and points to the rest of the picture and kind of leads the eye into this background space, but in a, in, in a kind of slightly violent way and in a way that, that has a, a fair degree of kind of representational uncertainty. Um, and it is, as you mentioned, not present in the preparatory sketches where you get 
a kind of rocky area that's that's only barely covered by water and also thus seems to provide a sort of stable ground for viewing, as it were, for the spectator so that you can kind of project yourself into the world of the picture and have and and you know this sort of sense of the sublime is possible but not it doesn't uh, suggest something kind of life-threatening and in the way taking away those rocks where one might stand to sort of see the view and replacing it with this with this precarious tree that seems sort of at once caught on the rocks and immobilized and on the other hand sort of being swept up by the spray and carried over I think presents a kind of threat to the body of the viewer that really interests me as well and has gives the painting a kind of different register than perhaps uh, other landscapes that we would label as sublime. Do you think viewers in 1857 or, or 58 or 59, by which point they would have had or could have had prints of it on their walls, would have viewed that branch possibly going over the edge of the falls, that broken branch, as a metaphor for union? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, I think these these paintings, which have so often been read as allegories of the Civil War, as, as having a relationship to the war, the rendering a part of the Union, or in this case, on the sort of eve of the war, that that possibility of national fracture. I think it's something that, that, that the painting engages with and doesn't necessarily resolve in a kind of neatly metaphorical way. But I think absolutely people, especially as the painting is again and again exhibited and as the war nears, are reading Niagara the place and Niagara the painting. And those two are often collapsed in in reviews as having a very real relationship to national fracture or the possibility of. And therefore, that branch, while it's, to my knowledge, not ever sort of pointed out as as the kind of locus for that, I think the fact that he sort of changes the composition and experiments with a composition that is more productive predictable and safe and conventional and then moves to a quite different composition that opens up the painting to those readings even more. And it's, you know, quite unresolved. And I think that's exactly exactly the kind of cultural mood in 1857, 1859. Church paints Niagara several times. The 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 next of the Niagara paintings with which you deal is the 1867 painting now in Scotland. The, I don't want to say dominant detail because that's a weird phrase, but the, the, the detail, once your eye finds it, it can't stop finding is a man in the left foreground on the left edge of the painting who is standing on a balcony, which seems almost physically impossible, on a ledge, balcony out on a ledge. It's just a very precarious thing. What do you take him to mean or suggest, his presence? Once you find that detail kind of breathtakingly precarious, and I think in certain ways it's a kind of embodiment or or further literalization of what 
is beginning with that branch in the 1857 painting. We have here, I mean, again, the, the theme of, of wood or branch now creating this kind of platform for viewing, a platform that's very much a part of this kind of picturesque touristic mode where one would go to you know, see the falls and experience their grandeur, but not seeing it from his perspective, one sees, I think, less the sort of sublimity of the falls and more the precarity of this position. And it, it seems like a very interesting kind of rewriting of, of the detail we were just talking about, the branch and the 1857 painting, even while I think noting a bit more the, the kind of touristic element of Niagara and, and the way in which that site has become even more part of the, the cultural imaginary in a way that it was, was in 1857, but church kind of eliminates or erases any signs of that kind of touristic mode of viewing. So it's, it's a painting that I think works in a couple of couple of directions. So the same year as the, the Scotland Niagara Church made a painting titled Vale of St. Thomas, Jamaica. It's now at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. It is full of very different detail than the details we've been discussing in the Niagara paintings. The, the details in the Wadsworth painting are bigger, more booming, uh, more lush, more tropical, more, just more. What did they suggest? And, and I guess by that I'm asking, are they mostly a churchian engagement with Humboldt or is there a lot more going on there? Yeah, I think there's a lot more going on there. I mean, I think Humboldt is always present for church and he's as someone who scholars since, you know, Barbara Novak have discussed and he's such a kind of seminal intellectual forefather for church. I mean, equal to Cole, I think, for him in, in teaching him how to how to see. But I think what's so interesting with church is in his desire to be as Humboldtian as possible, he becomes more Darwinian as the years go on, which is exactly also what happens to Darwin, who so greatly admires Humboldt and carries his books with him on the Beagle voyages. And I think it's this, this sense of observing the world that kind of connects them and this sense of trying to account for a kind of excess and also uh, competition for church, I mean, in the plane of the canvas in the visual field and for Darwin and, and thinking about systems of life and death. And so I, I think of a painting like The Heart of the Andes as as being so key in this way of, of trying explicitly to play tribute to to Humboldt and his tropical voyages. And he wants to send that painting to Humboldt in Berlin and Humboldt dies just before the painting is going to be sent over there. And yet 
the details in that canvas, I mean, one cannot stand in front of it, I think, and say that they resolve themselves. There's such a kind of competitive mode. And I think, you know, having stood in front of it many times too, looking at it with opera glasses, as we talked about earlier, which is how people would have seen it, it sort of emphasizes that even more. And I think when you get to a painting like Vale of St. Thomas, Jamaica, there's there's still, especially in that, that right corner of the canvas, such an astounding proliferation of life and also kind of parasitic elements. You have trees that are covered with parasitic vines, trees that are dying. Hanging off of them. Yeah, that sort of yeah, hanging and leaves at so many stages of sort of browning and decomposition and unfolding. And it just, it is just astounding to look at that foreground and to also see his sketch work from Jamaica. Um, he goes to Jamaica right after the conclusion of the Civil War, right after Lincoln's assassination, right after the death of his two children, tragically within several months of each other from diphtheria. And he goes to kind of take refuge in in sketching a new environment. And he sort of obsessively sketches and he leaves aside a painting that he's working on, um, which is at the de Young Museum called Rainy Season in the Tropics, which is a much more kind of resolved and kind of allegorically positive painting, I think. And I think he just can't work on that at this time and instead turns to Vale of St. Thomas, where you get this incredible sort of sweep of, of a black cloud and the sun, which seems to be either emerging or receding. And again, this kind of tangled life in the lower right. And what so strikes me about the painting is the detail in the, in the really center foreground of the canvas, which is this highlighted area where nothing explicitly is highlighted. So you get this spotlit area really of emptiness, as it were. And and what I mean by emptiness is not, of course, you know, that one sees, you know, the canvas or some such modernist thing, but rather that one really expects some kind of allegorical sign there, a cross, for instance, and he's done, you know, a painting a couple decades earlier when his mentor Thomas Cole dies. It's a, a similar composition in certain ways where you've got the spotlit foreground area and a cross that's covered with flowers. And the painting's called To the Memory of Cole when Cole dies in 1848. And given the kind of biographical facts of Church's life, the death of his children, the sense of this trip as an attempt to kind of recover from that, but also perhaps memorialize them, you you expect something there. You know, whether or not you know all of these details of his life, I think still one expects to see something around which the rest of the canvas and particularly, particularly that that proliferation of specimens at the right would resolve itself allegorically. And there isn't anything there. And I think it's such a kind of profound move to draw our eye to a spot and then not provide the expected symbolic resolution, not provide that kind of object of focus. And 
So I think this works on a number of registers, thinking about the kind of possibilities and impossibilities for for painting at that point for church. I think it also has a really interesting relationship to the Jamaican landscape and its immediate post-emancipation moment, where after emancipation from the British, Jamaica is absolutely covered with plantations that have been abandoned. So the landscape itself is marked by absence at this point, marked by these abandoned, mostly sugar plantations all over the island. And so to think about the meaning at this point in the sort of Jamaican context of what absence sort of looks like there. And this is something that when, when people, you know, set foot on the Island are, it's constantly being commented on both the kind of lushness of the landscape itself, but also the sense of these abandoned plantations as, as really marking these spots. So I, I think it also has a relationship to to the physical landscape at this point. And Church also paints the painting while um, something called the Morant Bay Rebellion is happening in Jamaica, a, a kind of bloody uprising, very close to where he worked and sketched while he was there. And it's covered extensively in the American press. Jamaica in general is, is actually covered extensively in the American press during the 1850s and 60s. So he would have been well aware that this revolt was happening, that that so many were dying, former enslaved people, mostly when the British cruelly seek to suppress the rebellion. So I think there's that register, too, of, of working on this canvas while, while receiving the news that this is what's going on in the landscape that he was just months before sketching in. I guess it's probably also Humboldtian in the sense that it's a painting of intense ecological unity at a time when, I mean, Church had made these paintings in the late 50s and early 60s that we read now as paintings about national unity, American unionism. And Veil of St. Thomas has a lot of the the, the, the unity of, of an ecological system, which was an idea, of course, that Humboldt introduced. And the detail in the lower right almost allows us to imagine that we can telescope into different parts of the painting and see those same plants, spines, whatever elsewhere in the painting. And I think the word you use to telescope is really so much a part of the entirety of the painting with that sense of the sweep of the of the sky and the mist and, and that sort of that incredibly intense sun, which when you look at the painting is really so built up and church really rarely builds up the canvas. So you notice these moments when the paint is built up and sort of draws the eye there and into that sort of circular telescopic form and then the swirls of mist. And as you say, the, the area to the right. So I think there's that sense of, yeah, that, that sense of sort of circularity and system that that he's trying to convey even if I feel in some ways that's countered by this by this strikingly spotlit absent area that that sort of works against the idea of a system that would be at least easily 
unified and it is it is a part of the painting where it seems like the sun shouldn't be able to get yes yeah yeah no exactly and it, it yeah it asks you to kind of be uncomfortable with that <laughs> it does it does well jennifer rob thanks so much for talking with me it's been great thanks so much for having me That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.